making your way back to your seats. And as you do, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're in the second week of our seven-week series on the seven churches in Revelation. And this morning, we are going to look at the shortest of the letters, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And so I want to invite you, if you've arrived, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Will you, will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Revelation chapter, it's a light crowd, I didn't even hear anybody stand, I thought y'all were still going to be seated. All right. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is what Jesus says, he says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of when the going gets tough. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together and to open your word. God, I pray right now that you would remove any distractions that might be present around us or in our own hearts and minds. God, I pray I pray that we would be able to fix our attention on the word. Believing, God, that you speak through your word. Pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when, when the going gets tough, you know, we are watching right now in real time historic events taking place in the world. You know, we prayed about it a few weeks back, but on February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, there's a history that goes back quite a bit when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. But the most significant history for the conflict occurred in 1991. Because in 1991, the people of Ukraine voted by 90% 90 of the population affirming their independence from the Soviet Union. But then just two months later, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine formally dissolved the Soviet Union. So by de facto, Ukraine was an independent country that was recognized worldwide. Now, as you're aware, under the leadership, if you call it that, of Putin, there appears to be a desire to recreate the Soviet Union of old, and that requires Ukraine to come back under Russian control. Now, it's been spun in different ways if you've watched the news, but at the end of the day, what we know is that Russia invaded Ukraine. But what has been surprising for many of us, it's been surprising for me as well, is the defense that that Ukraine has been able to muster. At the start of the conflict, Russia, and, and also many who were observing around the world and agreed with Russia, they believed that Ukraine would likely be overrun in a week's time. They were shooting for five days. They said it would take seven at the max. 
Many thought that there was no way that Ukraine could defend themselves against a force like Russia, but apparently nobody told Ukraine this. Because here we are 18 days in, and Ukraine, though massive life has been lost and destruction has happened, they're holding fast. And as I've, as I've observed this conflict, I've been somewhat amazed. And what amazes me, I didn't come to give you a history lesson about Ukraine, there's a point to this, I'm amazed at the endurance of the Ukrainian people. <clears throat> I'm somewhat, <clears throat> excuse me, amazed at their refusal to bend to the forces that is against them. There's something about standing firm when your back is up against a wall that the rest uh, of the world can look at and see as praiseworthy. But what's interesting is I don't think that Ukraine is seeing it that way. They're not thinking, look how great we are, look how praiseworthy we are. They're just trying to survive. And so when we kind of look in with a sense of awe, their backs are against the wall and they're just trying to endure. They're trying to make it through. And what's so interesting about Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11, in, in an actual, actually in more of a significant way, a more significant sense, that's what's going on in the church of Smyrna. Right? We look in and, we, and, and, and hopefully we'll be somewhat amazed at their resiliency. Thank you so much. We'll be amazed at their resiliency. But for the, the church in Smyrna going through the affliction, going through the hardship, they're just trying to make it through. Their backs are against the wall and, and they just need to know that it's going to be okay at the end of all of this. They're being pressed from all sides and yet this church who Jesus writes to, the church in Smyrna, is proving to be steadfast and immovable. And so in our text, what Jesus does is he encourages the church of Smyrna and reminds them to continue to endure even though they are in the midst of hardship and even though more hardship is coming down the road. And so what I want to do this morning as we walk through this text, this is the shortest of the letters. And, and I just want to walk through this text and highlight what Jesus says and hopefully draw out some lessons and encouragement for us as we seek to be a people who endure and remain faithful even when the going gets tough. So if you're a note taker, uh, I don't necessarily have any points. I think if you listen carefully, you might be able to draw out three of them uh, from this good, good Baptist sermon with three points, but uh, I'll let you figure out what they are. But I, but I want to just walk through this and and I think as we, we dive deep into what Jesus is saying and the implication of some of it, it will be an encouragement to us as we are a people who are called to be sojourners and exiles living in a world that is not our home and a world that's not supposed to be easy for us. So let's, let's dive in. Let's look, let's look at verse 8 again. It says, Write to the church, or to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Now, you could preach a whole sermon on just this verse. The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. But in this verse, we learn a few things. We learn who Jesus is writing to, and, and clearly he's writing to the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna is a very interesting city. Of the seven churches that are mentioned, of the seven cities uh, that are referenced in the, the letters in Revelation... Smyrna is the only city that still exists today with occupants in it. It goes by a different name now. It's called Izmir. It's in Turkey. You can go home, look it up on a map. 
And one commentator noted about the city, he said that Smyrna was one of the greatest cities of the region and it indeed disputed with Ephesus, we looked at Ephesus last week, for the title, the first city of Asia. So it was another major city. It too, like Ephesus, it was a cultural hub. It was under Roman rule. But what's interesting about Smyrna is it it had a large population of Jewish residents. But what's interesting about the city, and maybe it's just interesting to a nerd like me because I I like history a lot, but I think Jesus knows the history and maybe, maybe he's playing off the history here a little bit. But roughly 700 years prior to this being written, the city of Smyrna laid in ruins. From about 580 B.C. to 290 B.C., the city was destroyed. No one lived there. It was a pile of ashes. And for 300 years, it lay desolate before being rebuilt. Now, what's significant about Smyrna being rebuilt is that it was a planned rebuild, meaning it's one of the very few cities of antiquity that was planned. A lot of cities just formed because people settled there and it became a city. But Smyrna was a design city. There was an architect who came in who who mapped out what the building should look like, how the irrigation would work, how the water would flow, and they built this majestic city. It was magnificent. And so you could somewhat imagine the pride of the people who lived there. Their city was once destroyed and there was a plan to resurrect it. There was a plan to make it new. And the plan made the city magnificent. It was bigger and better than ever. And so here you have Jesus in the very beginning of the letter saying, I am the first and the last, the one who was raised from the dead. And so what Jesus is reminding them is that their city might be great, but he is greater. That their story might be a testimony of resurrecting buildings from the ashes, but Jesus' testimony is one of resurrecting people to new life. And by saying this, Jesus is reminding the church that in Christ, they have the greatest thing possible. They have Jesus. Jesus is better than this magnificent city. Jesus is better than man's plan to rebuild. And, and, and I want to press in here a little bit because... Because I have a fear that for many of us, I told you I almost preached my sermon a minute ago. For those of us who have walked with Jesus for a minute, I have a fear that we can read Jesus' testimony, that he is the first and the last, the one who was raised from the dead, and that statement can lose its magnificence. That the words of the gospel can become so commonplace that we forget the power of the gospel. Because what Jesus is reminding them of is the fact that they might dwell in a magnificent city. They may dwell in a powerful city, a city that has the means and the ability to inflict inflict pain and suffering and persecution on the Christians. That, That city might have all the cultural and earthly prestige. Rome might be great and the city might be grand. But what Jesus is saying is, church, don't forget that what you have in Christ is so much greater. And Jesus is saying, if you are trusting in me, you are trusting in the God who has existed before the world began. And when the world is long gone, when Smyrna is long gone, Jesus is saying, I will still exist. But not only that, he's a God who stepped into the world. Not only did Jesus live faithfully 
for the Father. Not only was he a good teacher and a moral example, but Jesus defeated the very enemy that held us captive. Jesus conquered sin and he conquered the grave and he reigns in victory. He was dead, but then he came back to life. Now we can't forget the context here. Jesus is writing to a church that has its back up against the wall. He's writing to a church that, as it says, is enduring hatred and slander. They are being put to death all because they are trusting in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't forget who you are enduring for. Jesus is reminding them that if the world takes away their money, if the world takes away their freedom, if the world takes away their comfort and their ease, if the world takes all that it can take, but they still have Jesus... They have the greatest treasure in all of existence. The gospel, hear me, it's not just some fairy tale that we tell ourselves to make us live right. The gospel is our only hope in a world that is so broken. Jesus begins by reminding the church who he is. But look at what he says next in verse 9. He says, I know your affliction and the poverty, or affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's two things I see in verse 9 that, that are very important for us to recognize. Here's the first. In, in verse 9, Jesus makes it clear that he knows what they're going through. Jesus knows what they are going through. This letter, it's an interesting letter. In, in almost all of the letters, except for two of them, this, the one we see this week and we'll look at next week, in all of the letters, Jesus says, I know your works. He, he looks at the church, he says, I know what you do. But in this letter, that's not what Jesus says. As a means of comfort, Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I see it. I'm in the midst of it with you and you are not alone. He says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. Again, the Christians in Smyrna were facing fierce persecution for their faith. They possessed no religious liberty like we possess in our country. Being a Christian in Smyrna meant signing up for a difficult life. But it's interesting to note where some of the affliction comes from. The second part there, verse 9, gives us some indication. It says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And Dr. Schreiner, in his commentary on Revelation, he notes this. He says, when John wrote the words, the Jews in Smyrna, they had had social and political power while the church was at the bottom of the cultural ladder. And he notes this. He says, Judaism was a legal religion under the Roman Empire, and the Christian movement for many years lived under the protection of the Jewish banner. Presumably, however, the Jews who belonged to the synagogue in Smyrna, which had a large Jewish community, were reporting the the Smyrna Christians to the local authorities, declaring that they weren't members of the synagogue, they weren't truly Jews, and they didn't deserve legal protection. So, so, So check this out. Not only were the Christians in Smyrna facing affliction from just living in the culture at large, they were facing slander and affliction from those who were religious as well. 
So, so when I tell you their backs were against the wall, right, like they were facing it from all sides. They couldn't turn to the world for relief. They couldn't turn to the Jews for relief. It seemed like they had no one in the midst of their struggle. And yet Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I see it. I see your faithfulness in the midst of all of it. You know, there's, there's just something about knowing that that somebody else knows what's going on in your life. Like we've been there. We've been in those moments when it seemed like the darkness was closing in and nobody sees it. Like we've been in some of those moments where we were tempted to believe that we are all alone and no one knows or could possibly understand the pain we're going through. We've been in some seasons where we've asked hard questions and we've wrestled through, through tough, tough thoughts about God and his faithfulness and we've convinced ourselves that no one else could comprehend what we're going through. And the beauty of what we see here in Smyrna, the beauty of being found in Christ is that you're never truly alone. There is nothing in this life that you will go through where Jesus will not be right there with you. And because of that, there's nothing you will endure that Jesus does not see and use. That's why passages like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 58 are so meaningful, right? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor is not in, in vain. The guarantee that what you do, even the hard moments, are not in vain is because the guarantee is because Jesus knows, he knows what you're going through. And he is there. He sees. And not for a moment, Christian, has Jesus ever left you or forsaken you in the midst of a struggle. Jesus says this to the church in Smyrna. He says, I see your struggle. Nobody else might see it. Nobody else might know what you're going through. But I see your struggle. And Jesus is comforting them with the truth that the struggle does not mean that I'm not there. We can believe that, can't we? That in the midst of struggle, somehow God has left. That things get hard. I've heard it. You've probably heard it too. Maybe you've said it. I've, I've been guilty of it too. That when things get hard, my first thought is, I don't know where God is. I don't know why he's not doing anything. I don't know why he's not near. And what Jesus is teaching here, what he's reminding of the church is, the struggle does not dictate my presence. I see it. I know what you're going through. I see your pain and your hardship. I see your faithfulness, and I'm with you in the midst of it. But, but I don't want you to miss this. Notice what he says, though, there about poverty. He says, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. He just throws that in there. See, here's the thing. This tells us a little something about the economy of the church. In a worldly sense, they were poor, but in eternal sense, they were rich. Well, how can this be? Well, there are some passages of Scripture that help us understand how that could be. Take the very beginning of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Or you could go to Psalm 4, verse 7, where the psalmist says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. You see, for Jesus and the church in Smyrna, just as it is for you and me who are in Christ, wealth is not measured by the degree of the stuff that we possess. Wealth is measured by the joy that we have. 
And what Jesus is teaching and what the church in Smyrna appears to understand is that joy is not dependent on comfort in this life. Joy is not dependent on the comfort in this life. Now, here's the thing. Here's why it's so hard to preach to y'all, okay? Y'all are smart. You're sophisticated. You know the Bible. You know when to nod your heads. And we can say statements like that, right? That your joy is not dependent on your comfort in this life. And we'll say, yeah, mm, that's exactly right. But then the test comes when the comfort leaves. That's when the test comes. And the question that we have to reckon with, that I have to evaluate in myself, that you have to evaluate in yourself, is when the temporary earthly comforts go away. Let's say it like this. When life gets tough, whatever that looks like for you, Right? Maybe it means you're getting talked about at work. Maybe it means your kids aren't behaving the way you want it. Maybe it means that your spouse ended up having to work late and you really wanted to have that dinner. Maybe it means that you had planned some rest and relaxation and a friend calls and they need you and you got to get up and get out of your pajamas and go to their house and love on them. And those comforts are taken away. The question is what happens to your joy when that happens? Are you a person who is easily defeated by the things of this world? Or does your joy... And your love for Jesus and your praise endure even when nothing else seems to be going right. But notice this. Not only does Jesus communicate to the church that he knows what they're going through, he also shows that he knows what they need. Like This can get lost. That's why it's good to, to look at these letters in the context of all the other letters because it would be easy to miss this. But of the seven letters to the seven churches, there are only two that don't have corrections in it where Jesus doesn't fix something. This is one of them. At no point in this letter does Jesus say what we'll see a few more times, but I have this against you. At no point does he call them to repent. At no point does he correct them. And this is what I don't want you to miss. It's not because they were perfect. It's not because they didn't have issues to fix. It's not because Jesus didn't have things against them. How do we know that? Because no church is perfect. But the reason that Jesus doesn't correct is because he knows what they need right now in the moment. And what they need is not correction. It's not a rebuke of sin. It's not a call to repentance. It is a loving reminder from Jesus. I see you and I've got you. Now, I think this is a timely lesson for the church today. Here's why I say that. There are some people who don't know how to do Christianity without a problem to fix. There are some people who don't know how to do Christianity don't know how to be a Christian without a culture war to fight. If you look today, don't do it. This isn't like me encouraging you to do it, but if you're already there, if you look at Christian Twitter today, it is impossible to not see some group of Christians mad at some other group of Christians because of some problem that they perceive. It's impossible to make it through a three-minute scroll and not see some perceived cultural compromise being condemned. There are some Christians today who have built entire platforms off of constantly pointing out the shortcomings of the church. Now, please hear me. I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that the church does not have issues that it needs to address. We absolutely do. 
I'm not saying the church is perfect. We are not perfect. But what I am saying is if the only way you know how to be a Christian is to bring your beliefs to bear on some problem, you may be missing a key aspect of what it means to look like Christ. Sometimes the body of Christ, sometimes the people of Christ, sometimes you need to simply be encouraged and not corrected about something. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the presence of Jesus even in the midst of broken people more than we need to be told to repent and fix something. We need to be told to repent. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying sometimes we just need to be able to celebrate that Jesus is here. He's in the midst of this broken, messed up, jacked up thing we call the church. We get it wrong sometimes. We make mistakes. The church has, has had major offenses. But Jesus still loves his bride. Sometimes Jesus is so good that in the midst of our struggle and pain, in the midst of our own shortcomings and mistakes, in the midst of the hardships of our own making, he simply reminds us, I've got you. I know what you're going through. And maybe, just maybe, the church would be better served if we learned to develop a spirit where we weren't always looking for a problem, but instead we were looking for the presence of Jesus. I don't know. Maybe there wouldn't be so much anger towards the church by Christians today. So let me make it as plain as I can. If you walk into this place every Sunday morning, with eyes fixed on what might be wrong, rather than celebrating that Jesus is here with his people, maybe, just maybe, you've missed the heart of your Savior. Jesus doesn't always have to deal with a problem. Jesus isn't at every moment pointing out your rough edges. If he was, you'd be crushed. And I think Jesus is giving us an example of what it looks like to love really well. There are times when what a brother or sister needs more than anything is a strong rebuke and correction, and we can't be afraid to do that. But there are some times when a brother or sister, there are some times when the church just needs to know that Jesus still loves her, and he's still with her. Jesus knows the struggle of the church. He knows the struggle of the church of Smyrna, and he knows what they need. But I want you to see this as well. Look, look at verse 10. Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. So not only does Jesus know what the church is going through, not only does he know what the church needs, but he also knows what the church will go through. Now, now check this out. Jesus isn't speculating here about what might happen to the church in the future as it relates to the church of Smyrna. He is telling them what is going to happen to them. They will suffer more. They will face prison. We know this to, to be true because we have the history to back it up. You know, John, this is one of my favorite things about the letter of Smyrna. I love the connections. But John wrote this vision down sometime between 95 and 96 A.D. 
Now, we don't know how long it took for this to get to the churches. Some say maybe five years. Some say it might have been the year it was finished. But it's a short time, time span. So John, John wrote this between 95 and 96 A.D. When John wrote this, the bishop of Smyrna, the elder or the pastor there, was a man named Polycarp. He would have been in his late 20s or early 30s when John wrote this. But here's what's interesting. Polycarp was John's disciple. John was the one who, the Apostle John, who wrote this letter. He's the one who trained Polycarp. He's the one who discipled him. He's the one who placed him in this position of ministry over the church in Smyrna. So keep this in mind. As John is writing this letter to the church in Smyrna, he knows the one who's going to receive it. He knows the face of the person that Jesus is talking about. This isn't some abstract church that Jesus is saying is going to suffer and some will be put to death. John is thinking of his spiritual son who Jesus is talking to. Now, some have speculated that it may have been Polycarp himself who took the letter to the church. But if he wasn't that, all historians agree that he would have been the person who received the letter from John. Can you imagine him opening this letter? So you have John telling the man that he has discipled that some of you, some of the people in your church, Polycarp, are going to suffer more. Some of you will face prison and some of them will die. But be faithful. I'm trying to put it in perspective. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus gave me that and I had to stand and say that to you? I got some of who I wish were in what category. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Bad joke. But it would be like me having to stand here and say, hey, Jesus wanted me to tell you. Not it could happen, it might happen, but there are people in this room who are going to suffer more. Some of you won't be here next week because you'll be in prison. And some of you are going to die for your faith. And I wonder, I wonder if Polycarp knew at the moment that he read this letter that John was talking specifically to him. Because 50 years later, at the age of 86, Polycarp would find himself facing death. Let me read to you how one pastor eloquently describes painfully describes the death of Polycarp. He said this, it was game day in Smyrna, a holiday. 20,000, this is true, bloodthirsty fans of torture and violence had turned out to see the shows. The violence was by design because Smyrna was the epicenter of the Roman spectacle. And we're talking about what also took place in the Colosseum. It happened in Smyrna too. And he says, up in Pergamum, just a few miles to the north, there was a school for training gladiators. And the program of the day of Polycarp's death went like this. In the morning, the wild animals were let loose into the arena, hunted down and killed. And later in the day, the gladiators themselves, who had trained vigorously, would fight. But in the afternoon, when the sun was high in the sky, it would be time for the execution of criminals. And there were a lot of them. Slaves, war captives, arsonists, murderers, and those like Polycarp who had committed sacrilege by refusing to honor the Godhead of Caesar and who would not take the easy way out. The proconsul took Polycarp and said to him, take the oath and we will let you go. Revile your Christ. And this is what Polycarp responded with. Eighty and six years I have served him. 
and he has done me no wrong. He goes on and he says, how then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And like his Savior, Polycarp walked naked to the stake to be burned alive. And when they lit the fire, history records that his body wouldn't catch on fire. And so a Roman soldier walked up and stabbed him with a dagger in the stomach. And it's recorded that Polycarp died by fire and sword. Now here's the thing. Some would view Jesus' words at the beginning of verse 10 and see it as rather depressing. I mean, let's be honest. Some of you are about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison to test you. Be faithful to the point of death. Like, what we want to hear in moments like this, right, is the church in Smyrna is suffering. Jesus sees their suffering. He knows what they need, and he's promising, I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to take away the suffering. It's about to get really easy for you. That's what we want to hear. But I have to believe that, the, that for Polycarp and the saints in Smyrna, reading what was coming wasn't a depressing thing for them. Because by Jesus telling them what was ahead, it reminded them that Jesus was already there. There is something about knowing that Jesus already knows what is unknown to us that ought to bring us a little bit of comfort. See, that's the significance of him being the first and the last. It's Jesus saying, I sit outside of time. I know the beginning from the end. What is going to happen to you tomorrow? I've already been there and walked those roads. There is nothing in your life that you have faced or will face that God is not sovereign over. Nothing catches Jesus by surprise. At no point in your life has he ever been scrambling to figure out how what the what the enemy means for evil, he'll somehow turn for good. See, what I'm trying to tell you is that no matter what happens in this life, you are eternally safe in the arms of Jesus. It might not always be safe. It might, it probably won't be easy, but Jesus is saying, I've got you. Paul says it like this, a scripture that we know so well in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul says this. You should memorize it. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when Paul writes this, it's not wishful thinking. He knows that Jesus has already seen the affliction and the distress. He knows that Jesus has already seen the danger and the sword. He has tasted life and tasted death. He is sovereign over the rulers 
rulers, the angels, the powers. He's been to the highest heights and descended to the lowest depths. He's seen everything you will face in this life. And he says, nope, none of it can separate them from my love. They're good. And if none of it can separate us from him, then we can say with full confidence that whatever happens in this life, whether trials we face, whether persecution awaits us, whether we face fines and prisons, whether our lives will be required of us, whatever it is, Jesus is already there. And if he is already there, we have a measurable hope. But I'm convinced that reading those words, when Polycarp read them, when he had to read them to the church, I don't think it was discouraging for the church because I believe in their minds the end of verse 10 and verse 11 outweighed what they were going to go through. Look at what he says at the end of verse 10 through verse 11. Be faithful to the point of death. Here it is. And I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. What does he mean when he says to the one who conquers? He he doesn't mean to the one who's able to avoid every trial. He does not mean to the one who escapes every persecution. He does not mean to the one who manages to save his life from an unjust enemy. No, that's earthly conquering. When he says to the one who conquers, he is talking about to the one who keeps the faith, to the one who is faithful to the point of death. And if we are faithful, the promise is that we will not be harmed by the second death. What's he talking about? He's not talking about avoiding a physical death. I mean, barring Jesus coming back, you do know that we will all die, right? Okay, thank you. Yeah, we, I, I just, if not, we need to go back and we need to do a little bit more work. Um, like, like barring Jesus coming back, we will all face death. For some of us, it might be next year. For some of us, it might be in 10 years. For some of us, it might be another 60 years. But the question is, will we die twice? And what Jesus is saying is that there is a death that is worse than physical death. There is a spiritual death. And for the one who rejects Jesus, for the one who refuses to place their faith in Christ and repent of their sins, I know this isn't a popular message, but it's Jesus' message. There awaits an eternal death. Separation from God in hell for all of eternity. But the hope of this passage is that for the one who trusts in Jesus, who believes in what he has done, who believes the gospel, that our sin separates us from him, but he loves us so much. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus who faithfully fulfilled the law, who did what we could not do, did not deserve death, did not deserve any punishment, and yet he went to a cross for us, bearing our sin, our reproach, our guilt, our shame, and he was crucified and he killed it all there. He was put in a grave and three days later raised And out he came with victory and hope and freedom. To to those who believe in that gospel and place their hope in that gospel. And believe in him even when things get hard in this life. To the one who is faithful. Jesus is promising. 
you will not be harmed by the second death. See, and here's the assurance we have that Jesus isn't just making this up. We can go right back to verse 8. Because the one who makes the declaration that you will not be harmed by the second death is the one who has authority over death. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came back to life. Jesus already gave his credentials to make the promise that he made. If you are unsure whether I can save you from eternal death, just know I've already beat death once. It's no thing for me. Death has no hold on Jesus. Death could not conquer Jesus. And in Christ, the same victory that he has is ours. And one day, one day, for those who are faithful, the words of Revelation 21 will be our reality. That he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. And so my prayer is that we would be a people who live our lives with eternity in mind. Listen, Smyrna wasn't going to be faithful by just thinking about tomorrow. Smyrna wouldn't have been faithful by thinking about just a year from now or five years from now or even in Polycarp's case, 80 years from now. The only way we conquer, the only way we are faithful even to point the point of death is when we have eternity in mind. And we got to reckon with the fact that for some of us, we can't think past today. Some of us can't think past next week let alone next year. But the call for us as Christians is that we live every day, not with the next day in mind, not with the next week in mind, not with the next 10 years in mind. We live and we function with eternity in mind, knowing that that is our home and that is our hope. And so when the going gets tough, we can remember Jesus knows what we are going through. Jesus knows what we need. Jesus has already been to our future. And that's good news because that means our future, even our eternal future, is secure. And this is where we find hope. This is how we stand firm in the fire and in front of the sword. This is how we declare, I have served him and he has done me no wrong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we, your people, would have a testimony of conquering. Not, not a conquering that comes from our own strength, not a conquering that allows us to avoid all of the hard things in this life. But God, a conquering that comes because we have been faithful to you. That when things were easy, we were faithful to you. When things were hard, we were faithful to you. And, and I pray, God, that we would, we would remain faithful and trust that no matter what comes our way, 
whether we find ourselves in a place where we are facing real persecution, if we find ourselves in a place where we too might be in prison for our faith, if we find ourselves in a place where our lives will be required of us because we have trusted in you, give us grace to be faithful, to live with eternity in mind and knowing that this life is not as good as it gets for those who are in Christ. But our hope is in the life to come when you will indeed wipe away every tear where there will be no death, there'll be no pain, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no hurt, there'll be no struggle, there'll be no wrestling because we will dwell with you in perfect peace. And God, may that be the desire of our heart. God, kill the idols that we have, the things that we want in this life more than we want you. Give us grace to even see what those things are so that we can run after you. God, you have been so good to us. So good. And the least that we can do is be faithful to you. For your fame and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.